One of the most scary experiences of my life was to be transported along with about 40 other young men my age in a military transport into the Royal Marine Commando School in Devon in the south of England. We heard a lot about commando training and we knew that we were going to be put through it, but when we drove into the commando school, we actually saw what was going on. And it was not a pretty sight. And I remember turning to one of our instructors and saying, you're going to get us doing that. You'll kill us. He said, don't worry about it. He said, we'll take you one day at a time. And we'll get you there. And when you get there, you finish up a big, red-blooded, green beret commando. Remember, all you'll be doing is what you used to do when you were 12. Well, it wasn't quite like that. But what he did do for us was take us gradually. When I looked at the commando fully trained and looked at where I was, it seemed impossible that we would ever get there. And yet, as we looked at the process that we were introduced to, it was a growth, it was a development, it was a maturing thing. It's the same in many aspects of life, not least in spiritual life. That's why we're talking about the growth of a soul. We can look in scripture, we can see pictures of the mature believers. We can see pictures of the great heroes of the faith. We read about what they accomplished and we say, oh boy, no way. I mean, just look at little old me here. We, we sometimes have that tendency with um, missionaries. The missionaries come back and tell us their favorite snake stories. They tell us about the challenging things that go on where they spend their time. And we say, oh, oh I'm just a, an ordinary Joe. That's not for me. Well, in actual fact, we should be open to the fact that God is prepared to work incrementally with us in the growth of a soul. Now, sometimes it will happen slowly. And other times you're introduced to sort of quantum leaps. And as we look once again into the experience of Simon Peter, the experience that he had with Jesus today, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus decided it was time for Peter to have some quantum leaps, to take some good, hard looks at where he was. Mark's Gospel and the eighth chapter. I won't read the passage to you. I'll simply tell you what it's about. The Lord Jesus was traveling with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and as was his custom, as they traveled, he spoke to them, got into discussion, got into questions and answers. He asked them the questions, they answered, they asked him the questions, he answered, the peripatetic educational method. On this particular occasion, he said to them, who do people say that I am? And the disciples quickly told him some of the various opinions that were being voiced abroad at that time. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And he required these disciples to come up with their own carefully thought out, articulated position personally as to who he was. Peter answered on behalf of the others and said, you are the Christ. And Jesus, according to another account of this incident, said, you're absolutely right, Peter, and you didn't figure this out yourself and no other human being told you. This was revealed to you by my Father. You are the Christ, said Simon Peter. 
Immediately, Jesus began to explain to him what was involved in him being the Christ or being the Messiah. And as he explained what was involved, Peter rejected everything that Jesus had to say. Now, this is a most odd thing. God has revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, but Peter is bringing to that understanding his own understanding, his own theories as to who the Christ should be. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So concerned was Jesus about Peter's resistance to what he was teaching that Jesus came out with the extraordinary statement to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now we need to look into that because talk about major, major challenges. I don't know if anybody's had a more major challenge than that. To be told by Jesus that he was actually doing the devil's work for him. Well, Peter was remarkably, of course, crestfallen at this, sat down with the other disciples and Jesus gathered all the crowds around him and he began to teach them the specifics of what it really meant to be his disciples. So that's basically the story. Now let's look into it and see what we can learn that is applicable to us in terms of our own spiritual growth and spiritual development, if you like, the growth of our souls. The first thing that I want you to notice is this. That when the Lord Jesus spoke to Peter and the other disciples, he required them to confront the issues that he raised. He required them to confront the issues that he raised. There are three that I'll identify for you here, and I won't elaborate on them at any great length. Just so that you get the idea that when you start relating to the living Christ, he will ask you some hard questions about some profoundly significant issues. Here's the first one. He said to these disciples and the crowd listening around, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? That's a big question. And he followed it with another one. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he gave this explanation. He that loves his life will lose it, but he that loses it for my sake and for the gospel will find it. Now, what is the underlying issue that Jesus is raising here? He is raising the issue of the purpose of life. A lot of people will talk with tremendous enthusiasm about incredibly superficial issues. Have you noticed that? If you haven't, listen to the radio talk shows. But try to get some people to sit down and talk to you seriously about the purpose of life. Ask themselves the question like this, why am I alive? What is the point of my existence? Is there any eternal significance to me? What am I supposed to be accomplishing? And you'll find that not infrequently, people are reluctant to confront issues like this. Now Jesus required people to do that. He went so far as to point out that it is possible for a person to utterly waste their lives. Can you think of a more monumental issue than that? The possibility of living a life and wasting it? He went even further and he said the best way to waste your life is just to hold on to it and do with it what you will, but the best way to invest your life is to abandon it to God's purpose and to God's cause. There is a monumental issue. Now the disciples were learning, the disciples, were, along with Peter, were learning at this juncture that it is necessary to be willing to confront the issues that Christ raises and to hear what he says about it. Here's another issue. 
I've already touched on it. It is this basic issue that Satan is at work in our world, that there is a malevolent force operative in our world. And the objective of this malevolent force is always to hinder and thwart the purposes of God. Now, the reason that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, is that Peter, wittingly or unwittingly, and I rather suspect unwittingly, that Peter unwittingly was actually doing the devil's work for him. What is the devil's work? The devil's work is always to hinder the purposes of God. And here's the issue that Jesus raises. It is possible for people to hinder the purposes of God in other people's lives. That is a scary issue. Just think the impact that I have on other people. That impact that I have on other people could be so negative that I actually introduce into their lives factors that are going to hinder God doing with them what he wishes. That ought to be a major concern. Let me give you a very personal note here. And I mean this purely as a personal illustration. One of the great concerns that I have is that given the opportunities and given the responsibilities I have given, I am so concerned that I might be wittingly or unwittingly hindering the work of God in people's lives. God has put me in a position where I can have an influence on quite a lot of people. If I'm not careful, I could be saying exactly the wrong thing. I could be doing exactly the wrong thing. In other words, I could be a stumbling block in people's lives. That's scary, folks. Now, those who are prepared to confront issues are prepared to confront the issue, not only the issue of what am I doing with my life, but they're also prepared to confront the issue, is it possible that I might wittingly or unwittingly be doing the devil's work for him? I'll give you an example of this from my own personal experience. One of the issues that confronts a church is what should women be doing in the church? Now, some people talk to me about that. They've been very gracious, they've been very kind, and they have arrived at different conclusions from mine on this. And we've had very, very helpful discussions on the situation. And I have explained my position. My position is this. As I have studied the scriptures, I have discovered you can make a very solid case from the scriptures of saying women should not be teaching in the public arena where men are present. You can make a solid case for that from the Bible. But from the same Bible, you can make a very solid case for saying it is perfectly legitimate under certain circumstances for women to have that kind of ministry. Now, guess which side of the argument I've come down on? Well, it's pretty obvious. But why have I done that? I have spent a lot of time studying the arguments on both sides. And if you want to discuss this with me, I'll be happy to. And whichever point of view you take, I promise you, I will argue the opposite if you wish. Not because I enjoy an argument, but because it is possible to take certain scriptures and look at it in very different ways. Why then have I come down the way that I have? And the answer is this. God has given me the privilege of being married to a very gifted woman. He has also granted me the incredible privilege of having a very gifted daughter. He has also put me in a situation where I am surrounded by incredibly gifted women. And you know something? I personally could stop them developing the gifts that they have and the ministry that they have. And I read a number of years ago in the, the parable in the New Testament. This is the parable in the New Testament 
where the master gave his servants certain talents and told them to invest them and he'd come back and check what they did. And one of those guys buried his own talents and the master was not happy about it. You remember the story? And it suddenly dawned on me, if the master isn't happy about you burying your own talents, how does he react if you bury somebody else's? And I am in a position of burying people's talents. And that thought, when I apply it, leads me to assume that it is just possible with the best will in the world, I could actually be hindering the purposes of God in other people's lives. And that's why I've come down on the side of the argument that I have. Now this is not intended to accentuate the discussion. It is simply a personal illustration of the concern I have confronting this issue. I've confronted the issue. I continually confront the issue. What am I doing with my life? I confront the issue. It is possible to do the devil's work for him. That's what disciples do. But then there's the third issue. The third issue that Jesus raised here is that the culture, the generation in which they were living, as he spoke to them, he described as sinful and adulterous. Here's the issue. We can live in a sinful and adulterous culture and be infected by it and never even realize it. Not only that, we are called to be living in our culture, affecting it instead of being infected by it. But if we don't carefully evaluate our culture under the light of Scripture, guess what? There's always the possibility that if we're not looking at the issue of the impact of culture on us, that we may be infected by it instead of being effective change agents in it. And a lot of people don't want to confront that issue. The point is this. Peter is being sat down by the Lord Jesus and he's being confronted with some issues and Jesus is saying to him, come on Peter, get real. Face up to some issues here. I submit to you that disciples do the same thing. Now, you're not going to face up to them and come to conclusions and get everything nailed down overnight. It's a growth process. You mature, you develop in these things. Here's the second thing. The Lord Jesus says to the disciples, who do men say that I am? They come up with all the answers, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Immediately, Peter is told, don't tell anyone. Now, various theologians have got various theories as to why Jesus said, don't tell anyone. And there's legitimacy, I'm sure, to many of them, but it seems that there's a personal thing here. As the story unfolds, Jesus begins to go into details concerning what it means to be the Christ, what it means to be the Messiah. And Peter has a totally different opinion. Now, here's the issue. If Peter goes around saying, Jesus is the Christ, and then explains who the Christ is according to his opinion, guess what? He'll be telling everybody what's wrong. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But let's look at this situation for a minute. What's going on here? Some of you may not be familiar with the term Messiah or the term Christ. The Jewish people, down through their long history, have been told by Jehovah, their God, that he would send his Messiah. He would be a savior. He would be a deliverer. He would be somebody who would come on and put wrong things to right. 
I suppose everybody is looking for that. I think every four years, America looks for a Messiah, a, a Savior, somebody who's going to get hold of this mess and sort Washington out, you know, that sort of thing. Well, this was on a bigger, grander scale. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, a Christ. Now then, the general opinion that seemed to have developed at the time that Jesus was on earth was this. That when Messiah came, number one, he would get rid of the Romans. Because you remember, the people of Israel at that time was under Roman occupation. They wanted to get rid of the tyrannical rule of Rome. They hated the Romans. They wanted them out there. And they were looking for a military figure who would overthrow the Romans. Number two, they would always look back to the good old days. So what's new? But as they look back to the good old days, they always thought of the golden era when David reigned and when Solomon reigned. That was the golden time. And they believed that when Messiah came, he would restore Israel to its former grandeur. So Messiah, in their mind, was probably a military figure, certainly a political figure, who was going to restore their economic well-being. Does this sound familiar? That was their idea of Messiah. Now Jesus comes along and he says, now let me tell you, I am Messiah, Peter, you're absolutely right. I am the Christ, you're absolutely right. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I will suffer many things. I will be rejected, totally rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the other people in authority there. I will be killed and on the third day, I will rise again. But don't worry about it, because I will eventually return. And when I return, eventually, I will establish my kingdom. Now, as he explained this, you'll notice something, that his agenda isn't even close to Peter's agenda. They're not even in the same book, let alone on the same page. So what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus, and he said, this is absolute nonsense. To suggest that you are going to go up to Jerusalem and be rejected by the political leadership, the spiritual leadership, and the educational leadership is nonsense. Messiah, if he's going to achieve anything here, is going to have to have those three groups of people in his hip pocket. They're the ones who are going to make things happen. Don't suggest for a minute that you're going to be rejected by them. You're going to be warmly embraced by them. What's the matter? Are you having a failure of nerve, Jesus? And all this talk about dying. What's the matter? Are you depressed? I mean, you need a rest. Things are getting on top of you. What a blessing I'm going to be to you. It's a good thing you've got me on your side, Jesus. I don't know what's becoming of you. Now, as far as this rising again from the dead is concerned, I don't know what you're talking about, but what I do know is this. It will be totally unnecessary seeing you aren't going to die. Then this business about returning and establishing your kingdom, you're here now, why do you need to return? Anyway, you won't be rising because you won't be dying, so you can't return. So sorry, Jesus, you got it totally wrong. Well, Peter's got a case here, hasn't he? I mean, he has decided what Messiah is going to be. Now, notice a couple of things here. Position number one. Peter has decided he knows the will of God better than Jesus does. Does that sound familiar? Here's the second point. Peter is absolutely convinced that he has the right to determine what kind of Christ he'll believe in. 
He is not interested in the Christ of Revelation. He is more comfortable with the Christ of his own imagination. What's new? You say, what do you mean, what's new? People aren't like that today. Are you sure? Has there ever come a time in your life, come on, be honest, we're facing up to issues today. Has there ever been a time in your life when you have decided that you know what is best for your life and what is best for your life is not what Jesus said, it's what you think. Has that ever happened? You say, no, sure. I doubt if there's a person within the sound of my voice who, if they're honest, would not have to say, it isn't just that it happened once. I have a tendency to think I know better than him, not infrequently. Let me give you an example. A young man said he wanted to talk to me a few years ago. When he came in, he said, I want to talk to you about my sex life. You wonder what I spend my time. So he gives me all the sordid details, and I'm sitting there listening to all this. At the end, after he's recounted all the details, he said, well, what do you think? I said, what does it matter what I think? Well, he said, I'm interested to know what you think. I said, well, I tell you what would be more significant. Uh, let's talk about what God thinks. He said, well, that's what I meant. I said, well, please don't confuse the two necessarily. <laughs> I said, let's look into the scriptures. He said, well, I know what the scriptures say. I said, well, do, would you call yourself a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ? He said, yes, of course I am. I said, okay. So you are a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. You are a member of this particular church. And you have a sex life that is not even close to what Jesus said your sex life should be. Is that right? He said, that's right. I said, well, how do you live with that? Oh, he said, it's easy. He said, I believe that what Jesus said was right. It's just totally impractical. Have you ever heard people be as honest as that? Rarely. But do people ever live it that way? All the time. All the time. You see what Jesus is saying to Peter? Peter, sit down there and confront the issues that I'm raising, and listen to me, I know who I am. You are not free to decide that you know the will of God better than I do. What you have to decide is whether you will accept the fact that what I'm telling you is true and authoritative for your life. And disciples of Jesus Christ are people who are prepared to bite the bullet and say, I will confirm the claims that you made. Now let's be clear about what he's claiming here. Jesus is saying, I have not come as a political figure. Much less, I have certainly not come as a military figure. And I have not come basically to restore your economic fortunes. And I have not come to be purely nationalistic. That's not why I'm here. I have come, and I have come in order that I might go to a cross and die. Because, you see, the root problem of the world is not political, and it's not military, and it's not economic. The root problem is the sinfulness of the human heart. And I've come to get to the root of the problem. I'm going to die on the cross and rise again in order that people's sins might be forgiven, and in order that their sinful hearts might be changed. That's why I'm here. To do that, I will have to be rejected. To do that, I will die a death that is redemptive. To do that, it will be necessary for him to rise again. Then I will return subsequently and establish my glorious kingdom, but it will be a spiritual kingdom. 
Not military, not political, not economic, not nationalistic. It will transcend all boundaries and it will produce people who are all one in Christ Jesus from every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation. And they'll have two things in common. Number one, they all know they're sinners. Number two, they all know they're forgiven by the grace of God because of my death and resurrection. Now here's the question. What kind of Jesus do you believe in? What kind of Christ do you confess? Do you confess a rejected, redemptive, risen, returning, reigning Lord Jesus? If so, does he reign over your life today? Peter sits there and scratches his head and says, wow, <laughs> wow, we're making some big leaps now. You are Simon, I know what you are. You will be Peter. The process of the growth of a soul is going on. As he confronts the issues that Christ raises and he begins to confirm the claims that Christ made. Instead of his own ideas about Christ, he acknowledges that what Christ has said is true. Which leads to the third point here. And that is Peter is now given the opportunity of hearing a profound, simple, succinct statement. This is it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and keep on following. Got it? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and keep on following. In other words, we are to confront the issues that Christ raises. We're to confirm the claims that Christ made. We're to conform to the pattern that Christ outlined. Let me take those four things really quickly for you. Come after me. This is a technical term in the original language. It means, first of all, the attitude of an ardent lover who wants to be with the beloved. They come after them. It means also the attitude of an eager learner who's always there in class, wants to get all the information that she can. It's also the attitude of the available servant who says, I want to be available and I want to serve as I ought to serve. Coming after like an ardent lover, coming after like an eager learner, coming after like an available servant. Let me give you one example of this. Years ago, I preached in a church in Scotland Edinburgh, Scotland. A young lady spoke just before me. She was a missionary nurse, just a young, young woman, beautiful young girl, with a delightful Scottish accent. She had been serving in Kabul, Afghanistan, at the time that the Soviet armies were there, and tremendous fighting was going on between the Mehedin and the Soviets. People had been desperately wounded, and there this little Scottish girl was devoting herself to caring for people on both sides in that dangerous, dangerous situation. While she was there, she'd met a young man. They'd fallen in love, and he'd asked her to marry him. She had said to him, would you believe, I didn't come here looking for a husband. I came here to serve God as a missionary nurse. My church sent me to do this. They're supporting me in it. Before I can answer your question, I will need to go back to my home church and talk it over with them. Can you believe that? That was why she was home. 
She told this story, the dour old Scots were sitting there trying to look like something other than dour old Scots. But their stiff upper lips were trembling ever so slightly, and the ladies had taken out their little lace handkerchiefs and were dabbing the corner of their eyes. She's finished her wonderful story, sat down beside me. I said, that was absolutely wonderful, thank you. I don't think I need to preach. Anyway, they wanted me to, so I got up and preached. But before I did, I said to her, you just held that congregation in the hollow of your hand. And there was a young man on the front row, I don't know if you noticed him, he was right down below that high pulpit. And he was just sitting there with a crick in his neck, just drinking in every word. And she said, that's him. I said, that's who? She said, that's the man who wants to marry me. I said, well, I thought he was in Afghanistan. She said, I did too. But I said, what happened? She said, well, he heard I was jumping a plane and flying back here, and he jumped the next plane and came after me. Does that make sense? Are you surprised he did that? He didn't want those Scottish elders messing this situation up. He loved her. It was a very expensive thing to do. It was a very expansive thing to do. It was a very reckless thing to do. But isn't that what coming after somebody like an ardent lover means? You know, the problem with many people in the Christianity today is that there's nothing expensive about it, nothing expansive about it, and nothing reckless about it. One wonders sometimes how ardent their love is for Christ. Peter sits there and he knows what's involved in coming after Christ. Jesus said, are you prepared to conform to the pattern that I've outlined? He that comes after me, he says, must deny himself or deny herself. Now, in the ecclesiastical calendar, there is something called Lent. Lent is a very special time, and some people take it extremely seriously, and some people don't even notice it. Some people who take it seriously decide that the thing that you do at Lent is that you give up certain things. It's self-denial. Often what they do is give up some things that they probably no business having taken up in the first place. But at the end of Lent, they usually start doing it again. I suppose the advantage to that is that they'll have something to give up next Lent. This is called self-denial. Now, this should never be confused with denying yourself. There's a big difference. Let me explain the difference. To deny yourself means that you recognize that there's something innately selfish about all of us. Right? There's something innately selfish about all of us. We know what we want. We know what we don't want. We know what we'll do. We know what we won't do. We know what we're going to do. We know what we're not going to do, etc., etc. And it's a very, very powerful drive within us, this thing called selfishness. Now then, when you become a believer, when Christ becomes your savior, when out of grace he changes your life, and as your Lord, he begins to steer you in different directions. And the growth of a soul starts taking place. Guess what? You begin to discover that he has plans for your lives. Happy is the woman who finds that her plans and his plans are identical. But I've never yet met anybody in that situation. What I have met is people who are coming to grips with the fact that the plans of themselves and his plans are in major conflict. They have to make a decision. 
Now, the decision that Jesus made as a human being down here on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane is helpful. He said to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. That's denying yourself. Coming to the point of saying, my will and your will are not in harmony, Lord. Something's got to go. And God says, you're right, and I know what it is. And you come to the point of saying, I will abandon my life to your cause. And my will will be subjected to your will. That is a biggie. And Peter is sitting there, he's listening to all this. And he's hearing these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now that eminent theologian Frank Sinatra has been very helpful to us in this regard. Frank Sinatra, you remember, tells us, I did it my way. Now we've looked at his life and we say, oh, now we understand. You did it your way. We should all write him a card and say, thank you for telling us why you messed up. You did it your way. The thing that the Christian ought to be able to sing is, listen very carefully. I'm not going to sing it. Listen very carefully. I did it his way. And Peter sits there and he thinks, huh, this is what he's calling me to. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. I got married one day. Stood at the front of the church, said a whole lot of things like sickness and health, richer or poorer, better or worse, till death is do part, I keep myself only unto you. And after I'd made that promise, I suddenly realized Jill hadn't said a word. She just stood there. <laughs> and I broke out into a cold sweat. Then he said a whole lot of things to her and she said, I will. And that was a relief. And as I came out of that church, I thought to myself, I have made a monumental decision. I have given myself to this woman unreservedly. I didn't know what I'd done, but I knew my heart. I knew it was what I wanted to do. I knew it was what I intended to do. But you see, I've had a personal tutor, Jill, teaching me what I said years ago. <laughs> Now you make the decision, but day after day after day after day, guess what happens? You have the opportunity of ratifying it. And that's how your soul grows with the Lord. You come to the point of saying, God, I don't know all the ramifications of this, but I do know this. As you know my heart, my desire and my intent is this. When it comes to push and shove, my will versus your will, it's your will. I was raised in England with this phrase. It reverberated through most of the preaching I heard as a young person in my late teens and early 20s. Are you willing to tell the Lord you'll go anywhere, at any time, under any circumstances, to do anything? And as best I know my heart, in my early 20s, I said, yes, I'll go anywhere, at any time, under any circumstances, to do anything. It's great when you get there, the struggles, are all over. The decisions are made. It's a case now of amplifying them and ratifying them. Peter sits there and says, huh, we're really moving now, aren't we? 
I've got to confront the issues he raises. I've got to confirm the claims he made. I've got to conform to the pattern he outlined. But there's something else. If you come after me, you deny yourself and you take up your cross. Now, taking up the cross does not mean being brave about the unfortunate circumstances of your life, like as in, well, I suppose that's my cross. No, taking up your cross means for you what it meant for Jesus. What it meant for Jesus was this, that the Lord outlined for him what his purposes were for Jesus. And he identified with it regardless of the consequences. When you come to think about it, your salvation was predicated on Jesus having that attitude, that he was prepared to identify with the purposes of the Father, whatever the consequences. Here's the question. Why in the world do we think that Jesus should have had to do it that way while we get off scot-free? It only makes sense if we admit that in the same way that he took up his cross and identified with the Father's will regardless of consequences, that I should do exactly the same. And I identify with the Father's will regardless of consequences. And keep on following is the final word here. Let me tell you one story and then I'm through. When our daughter was in college, she came home one time and she said, Dad, there's a 10,000 meter race down at the lakefront. Will you run it with me? It's obviously a long time ago. And so I said, sure. So we arrived down at the lakefront, 25,000 other people there. Now at the front of the 25,000 were the professional runners who were being paid to come and run. Behind were some very serious runners. Behind them were some serious joggers. Behind them were not so serious joggers. Behind them were joggers. And behind them were a group of people, I don't know why they were there, and right at the back, you wouldn't believe what was there. There was a bunch of people just goofing off. There was one group of men dressed up in the uniforms of the Fruit of the Loom adverts, you remember? You know, one guy was dressed as a banana, another plum, and another bunch of grapes or something like that. There was five men who had a bed with, with wheels on. You see, one at each corner and one guy lying on the bed and they were going to rotate. There was another guy, it was Milwaukee, so he was dressed as a beer bottle. There was one guy on stilts. Well, the gun went off and away we went. I won't tell you where I was, but it was a while till we got to the starting line. We could hear behind us all the laughing and the cheering and the goofing off that was going on with the Fruit of the Loom guys and the beer bottle. I understand, actually, that the, the guy who was dressed as a plum, his costume split. And the beer bottle was last seen hanging over a picket fence. The guy on the stilts fell off and a wheel came off the bed. We just kept going. For the first mile, you could hear people laughing and joking. For the second mile, it sort of quietened down a bit. The third mile, you could just hear the flap, flap, flap of feet. The fourth mile, you could just hear heavy breathing. The fifth mile, you could hear people praying quietly, Lord, get me through this and I promise I'll never, ever do it again. The sixth mile, you staggered in and you're just a blank, numb, a few hundred yards after the sixth mile and you get two things, a printout and a t-shirt that's too small. <laughs> you look at the printout. First thing you look for is, where did I finish? The second thing I looked for was Fruit of the Loom guys, <laughs> the beer bottle, 
the man on stilts, the men on the bed. You know what? They weren't there. If you had asked people at the beginning of the race, who did you notice most? They'd have said, did you see those fruits of the loom guys? Did you see that beer bottle? <laughs> did you see those guys? You look at the printout at the end. They don't even rate. The moral of the story is, when it comes to a race, it's not starting with a big splash. It's finishing. And Jesus said, my disciples, come after me. Deny themselves, take up the cross, and keep on following. And Peter sits there and he says, wow, now I see what he's doing to me. He's making me confront the issues that he raises, and I will. He's making me confirm the claims that he made, and I will. And he's asking me if I'll conform to the pattern he outlined. He's in commando school. Little by little, incrementally, sometimes by quantum leaps, is experiencing the growth of the soul. Are you? Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Lord, that you talked in such a straightforward manner to Peter and the other disciples because you still speak to us in a straightforward manner. You cut through the superficiality, the trivialities that we're so prone to concentrate on and you ask us to consider the important issues lord would you please graciously take your word home to our hearts and help us to ponder these things and tell you our response you'd ask us to examine our hearts and come freshly to you for your grace for your forgiveness for your presence in our lives Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.